Welcome to Canvas Church. You are listening to our weekly celebration service message. Thank you for tuning in. All right. I am Melissa Miller. I am the women's pastor at the church, and we are in the middle of a series called the Summer Speaker Series. And your lead pastors are on vacation, a much-deserved vacation. And I uh, get invited to speak at MOPS groups and other churches, and there is no other place that I'd rather speak other than my home church. I love this church, and I love our pastors. And part of that is because I see um, uh, the culture. They've done such a great job of setting the pace for the culture of this church to be one of grace and one of joy and one of, uh, of welcoming people. And I love that culture and I love that they have led the way in that. And um, I have been married for 12 years. We just celebrated our 12 year anniversary. Yeah, I love celebrating marriage. It's awesome. And my husband is not here. He's at the North County campus, and which I'm going to head up to in a little bit. Um, but we have three beautiful children, uh, ages 10, 7, and 4. And we have been a part of the church almost from the very beginning. We moved out here to help Ben and Katie. And so uh, we, we absolutely are fully invested, and we love you guys and uh, pray for you a lot. I'm going to be talking to you today out of 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10. And we're going to be talking today about embracing your setback as a setup. How many of you guys like when you get set up? Not on a date, but when God sets you up, right? When he positions you at the right place at the right time. And, and what you think is a setback ends up being something he was working out for your good or for the good of those that you love and that are around you. Amen. Isn't that good? So we're going to be talking about that today. So if you have your Bibles with me, feel free to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. And we're going to have fun this morning. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 3. We're going to start in verse 3 to 6, and it's the whole kind of passage that I'm speaking from today is two whole chapters, so I'm not going to read the whole two chapters. So what I'm going to do is read kind of snippets, and I'll summarize. I'll fill you in on the rest and summarize. So verse 3, it said, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young uh, men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashash. Say that five times fast, right? But they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim and they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Someone say set back. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he's a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true, so now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. So we're going to jump down to verse 15. Now the day before Saul came... The Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because of their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. Someone say, set up. <laughs> he, he it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said to me, tell me where the house of the, the seer is. And Samuel answered Saul, I'm the seer. Go up to, to the high place for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and I will tell you all that is on your mind. And as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them for they have been found. 
And so we're going to jump down to, uh, he, he begins to uh, uh, kind of tell him what's going to happen to meet him outside. And then he says, um, in verse 6 of 10, chapter 10, it said, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet, you do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to your Uh, burnt offerings to sacrifice peace offerings. And when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart and all these signs came to pass that day. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you, Lord, are always working behind the scenes, Lord. We thank you, God, that what sometimes we can see as a setback, God, that you're using as a setup. God, we thank you, Lord, for your sovereignty, for your presence in this place. And God, we pray that you would speak to each and every one of us, Holy Spirit. We open up our hearts this morning and we open up our spiritual ears. We pray that we would hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying today. We pray that we would leave this place being encouraged and equipped, Lord, in your presence and just being in awe of you and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to just kind of summarize what happened here. We've got uh, Saul. And he, his father's donkeys are missing. They're gone. And uh, they're kind of like if your car got stolen, like you can't really get very far without them, right? And it's also considered like his livelihood. I mean, it's, it's kind of a big setback here. And so I don't know if his father was old in age and he couldn't look for the donkeys himself, but Saul goes to look for these donkeys for his father. And it doesn't really say if he had donkeys to go look for the donkeys. I imagine maybe if they were all missing, he has to go on foot. But either way, we see him traveling with his servant from city to city, trying to get his father's donkeys back, trying to get his transportation back and his livelihood back. And he's searching and he's looking and they're not finding these donkeys at any of these cities. And finally, they realize that they've been gone so long looking for these donkeys that his father's probably no longer worried about the donkeys. His father's probably worried about him, right? His father's probably wondering where he's at. And so they they decide, hey, we're going to, we need to head back. But before we do, the servant said, hey, there's a prophet in this town, and maybe he can tell us the word of the Lord. Maybe he can tell us where to go to look for these donkeys at least. And so sure enough, they find the prophet. And God had already been speaking to Samuel the prophet and saying, hey, there's a man that's coming, and I'm going to anoint him as prince. I'm going to anoint him as king. So uh, you're going to be pouring oil over his head, anointing him. I'm setting his up. So there, we see now that there's a greater purpose behind the donkeys being missing, right? It really was never about the donkeys to begin with, right? The donkeys were a catalyst to get Saul to where he needed to be. The donkeys were just a method that God used to get him to the right place at the right time so that God could speak to the prophet and begin to anoint him as king. And so we see uh, Samuel, uh, he begins to talk to Saul and say, hey, I know about the donkeys. Don't even set your mind on them. They're taken care of. Now I'm going to tell you about the greater purpose of why you're here, right? And he begins to tell them about the greater purpose. And I kind of wish that this scripture, like that he, you know, kept kind of having a little bit of a tug of war with God because it's not so neat. It's not as neat as it sounds because we all know Saul ended up right at the end of his life and he kind of failed as king. He kind of didn't do a great job. He went into fits of jealousy. And sometimes I think for those of us, how many of you are readers? I love to read. But I love a good villain, and I love a good hero, right? 
I want to know who I'm rooting for and who I'm rooting against, right? And it's not very clear here because I want to root for Saul. Saul's response is humble in the beginning. Saul does some pretty cool things in the beginning, but we also know we see some failures in Saul. And in our eyes, that disqualifies him from being the hero of the story, right? That disqual. And so I'm like, well, God, you know, couldn't this be more neatly packaged? You know, well, don't you set up only perfect people, right? <laughs> and that's just not how God works. Jesus Christ is the only one who was never, never sinned, right? Never failed, never let us down. He's the only perfect one, right? He's the only one that is really the true hero of this book right here, right? But so oftentimes we want another hero. We want to, we want to say, oh, but I want to, I want to root for this perfect person. And there is no other perfect person other than Jesus, which is maybe, you know, the way it's supposed to be. He doesn't edit out those bad parts of people's lives, right? He doesn't edit out the imperfections and the times that they failed. So anyway, um, I, I, I love this scripture because it kind of is hard for me to wrap my brain around, but it also in the same sense gets me to look my eyes up to how good God is and how good his grace is. Because we have to be aware of something, that God is saying yes to a very imperfect nation, right? The nation of Israel is asking for a king even though God wanted to be their king. So he's working with them, and he's working with their motives, and he hears their, their cry, and he hears their prayer, and it, it's an imperfect nation with imperfect motives, okay? So he's working with the, them, and, he, and he, he loves them. He loves this imperfect nation, and he loves the, you know, them and, and, and wants them to serve him again. So he's working with them, and then they say, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king, even though he doesn't think that this is the best plan. He still says yes to an imperfect plan. It's hard for me. That's hard for me, right? It's hard for me to wrap my, my mind around. So he's working with an imperfect nation, and he says yes to an imperfect plan, and then he chooses an imperfect leader to carry it out. Kind of sounds like America, right? <laughs> right now, with the elections. I think I take comfort knowing God can still work with an imperfect nation. Amen? He can still work through an imperfect leader, and he can still work with an imperfect plan to be able to get us to, to, to look our eyes up to Jesus. And, and, uh, and so I think that that's pretty encouraging. Amen? How many of you like banana bread? Okay. All right. You got a little peppy there. That was the key. All foodies, right? Uh, when I first got married 12 years ago, my husband likes a lot of the foods that I don't like, and I like a lot of the foods that he doesn't like. How many of you married people can relate to that? I buy tomatoes, and I'm only one in, fa in the family that eats tomatoes. And um, my, I don't like peanut butter or bananas. I know that that's kind of strange. Some people mix them together, and that's disgusting to me. You all make peanut butter banana smoothies or sandwiches. Gross. Um, but my husband, I do like banana bread, even though I don't like bananas. And my roommate from college used to make the best banana bread. And uh, when we got married, Brandon would always kind of make these hints, like, it'd really be great. Like, banana bread's awesome. You know, he, I could tell he wanted me to learn how to make banana bread. And so I wasn't the, the best homemaker in the beginning. I've grown a little bit. But I, I was like, I am gonna, I'm going to be the hero. I am going to save the day. He's going to come home from work and have, it's good, there's going to be warm banana bread uh, waiting for him. And so I made it, and it was disgusting. It was terrible. You could have bounced it and dribbled it. Um, it was rubbery and weird. The texture was off. The smell was off. The taste was off. But I went back through, and I had followed that recipe, and I had did what I thought 
I was supposed to do with every little ingredient, and it was like just nasty. And I, <laughs> but I still wanted to have it out for my husband. And you know, I was like, what do you think? Maybe it's because I don't like bananas that much. And I don't know. I thought that I liked banana bread. but So he tastes it. And sure enough, he is so gracious, but you can tell by the look on his face. This was not what he was expecting his banana bread to taste like. He's very gracious, very gracious, but I can read him. And I'm like, something's off. So I call my roommate, and I said, what is your secret to good banana bread? And she said, did you brown the bananas? And I was like, like, saute them? I was supposed to cook them? I didn't realize I was supposed to cook them. No, did you brown them? Did you let them sit out? and basically turn completely brown. I was like, no, of course not. She's like, that's the secret. You've got to have completely round, brown bananas. But she's like, wait until they're completely brown. Like, they're going to look unusable. They're going to look disgusting. You're not going to want to, like, you know, use them for anything else. You're not going to want to put them in your smoothies or anything. But trust me, that's the secret. And so I, sure enough, I put them in the brown paper bag, and there's fruit flies swirling around this bag, and I'm like, how long do I go until they're still edible and they're not going to make my family sick? And so I uh, finally was like, okay, I think these look like what she described. I think that it's time to make the banana bread. And so I took what was looked disgusting, it looked unusable, it looked awful, and like nothing you would ever want to eat. And I mixed it up. And sure enough, that was the secret ingredient to amazing banana bread. So give you a little tip, you young wives. <laughs> Get them rotten, almost rotten. And somehow. Um, but I think that I learned something through that process about God. Is that's kind of how God works, isn't it? He takes the ugly and the seemingly unusable things in our lives, and somehow he mixes the right ingredients together, and he turns it out for something amazing and something delicious and something beautiful and something that you would never think came from those seemingly unusable rotten bananas, right? And I think that we've got a lot of rotten bananas in this story, right? We've got the imperfect nation saying, we want a king because we want to be like everybody else, and so they're giving God some rotten bananas, and and then we've got the, the imperfect leader who's going to fail eventually, but God chooses him anyway, and he, rotten bananas. And then we've got this, this uh, you know, imperfect plan of anointing a king when God didn't think was the best plan to begin with, and it's rot, more rotten bananas. And somehow God, in his sovereignty, is able to take those seemingly unusable things and turn them around for his purpose and for his good. Romans 8.28 said, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Say all things. Say the good things. The bad things. The rotten things. The seemingly unusable things. God can take those things and he can mix the right ingredients and turn it around for good. Isn't that amazing? The things that you're ashamed of, he can use for good. The things that you're embarrassed about, he can use for good. The things that you didn't want to tell anybody, you thought that maybe you would just breeze by that season of your life and never look back, and somehow at some point in time, God will use it for good. Maybe it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation and somebody opens up to you about what they're going through, and all of a sudden you have to stop and you have to say, you know what, me too. 
Me too. And in that moment, God takes those rotten bananas in your life and he uses it for an opportunity to encourage somebody else. How do we embrace our setback as a setup? How do we stop realizing that it's not about the donkeys, right? (laughs) Number one, we need to stay purpose-focused and not problem-focused. Stay purpose-focused and not problem. When he gets to the prophet, the prophet says, hey, I know about the donkeys. He says, they've already been found. He said, don't even set your mind on those things. And there is a time where we do need to focus on the problem. We need to feel whatever it is that we need to feel. And we need to process whatever it is we need to process. But sometimes when we've tinkered with our problem and we've done so much to focus on it, sometimes it's like dieting, right? It's like, don't eat the cupcake, don't eat the cupcake. And then, sure enough, you eat the cupcake because you're so focused on it. And so this prophet says, hey, it's taken care of. Don't even set your mind on those things. It's time to focus on the bigger picture here. It's time to get your eyes off the donkeys and onto the purpose. It's time to get your eyes off the problem and onto the purpose. My husband and I went through kind of a, a funky season in our marriage about year eight. And we are literally more passionately in love than we've ever been. I love my husband so much and we're best friends. Um, but every marriage goes through something, you know. There's no perfect marriage. So we went through a little funk and we were like, okay, how do we get out of this funk? How do we stop, you know, um, doing this or doing that or having these conversations or whatever? And so we went to a counselor for about four weeks. I'm a huge fan of counseling, coaching, whatever help and uh, encouragement that you need to get wherever. I am a huge uh, advocate of that. And I think we need to get rid of the stigma around it. Amen. So um, we went to a counselor for about four weeks and he's like, okay, so I want you to read this book. And we're like, we read that book. Okay. So I want you to do this exercise. We like, we, we did that exercise. Okay. I want you to do this. And we're like, oh, we did that too. And I kind of felt bad. Like I wanted to, you know, I wanted to work with him here, but we had already done all the things that he would have advised that we do. And so finally at the four week mark, he looks at us and he's like, what do you guys think you need? And we looked at each other and we were like, well, I think we need to take this money and go on dates and use it for dates <laughs> in all seriousness. So he was, he was supportive. Okay, go for it. So the first date, we ended it with our arms crossed and we weren't speaking to each other. We're like, what went wrong there? And we realized that we had talked about something stressful on the date. So we had to put some parameters in place. We needed to stop focusing on the problem and we needed to focus on the bigger purpose. We needed to dream together again and we needed to have fun together again. And so we made rules for our dates that we weren't allowed to talk about anything stressful and that our two main objectives of date nights were to have fun and to dream together. And I would, I'm telling you, our marriage is better than it ever has been because we got our eyes off the problem and we got it on the greater purpose, that we started to dream together as a couple again, that we started to get our eyes focused on maybe the bigger purpose for why God had put us through some of the seasons of life that he'd been through. And we began to dream together again, and we began to pray together again, and we began to have fun together again. And it's not that we never went back to the problem. It's not that we never talked about the problem. But the moment that we went back, it seemed so much lighter. It wasn't as big and as heavy because we had a purpose and we had a dream and we were having fun and we were going after the plans of God together. And now if we go back and we talk about those things, it's a team attitude now because we're having fun together and we're dreaming together. 
And I want to ask you what donkeys in your life are you chasing right now? And God would just say, hey, it's not about the donkeys. I want to give you a higher perspective. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways, declares the Lord. And can I get your eyes off the little donkeys for a moment to get it on the bigger purpose of why I've chosen you? Can I get it on the bigger plan? Can I get you to dream together again? Can I get you to focus on, on, on the plan and the purpose of why I called you into that neighborhood that you're at and those neighbors and those coworkers? And maybe there's a bigger purpose. And sometimes when we can get our eyes off that little problem, that little setback, sometimes God was working all along to set you up. Amen? Embracing your setback as a setup. Number two, allow God to do something in you before he does something through you. It says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he was turned into another man. It also says that in a different uh, chat verse, it, it says he gave him another heart. That is so powerful. That is so powerful that God wasn't going to let this man be promoted as king before he did something in him. He wasn't going to do something through him before he did something in him. And if you feel like maybe this summer you've been in a bit of a season of pruning and God's been challenging you in some areas and you've been feeling your spirit stirring in some areas, allow God to do something in you before he does something through you. Embrace the, the refinement of your character. Embrace those moments when the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to your heart and tugging on you and helping set you free from some things and some insecurity and some lies and some mindsets that, that, are, that are not healthy and not right. And embrace what he's doing in you and trust that what he's doing in you is for a purpose of doing something through you. He gave him another heart. He turned him into a new man. That's powerful. That is so powerful that the Spirit of God would rush upon him and do something deep, a work, deep work in his heart. The greatest breakthroughs that I've been, to, been able to facilitate, not that I create the breakthrough by any means, but in moments where God has been so gracious enough to use me in situations, um, usually it's because God did something in me first. God did something in me. What, what, are, what are those deep things that God is trying to do in your heart and in your life and in your mind, beginning, getting you rid of a workspace mentality, trying to strive and prove and make it happen and find those donkeys? And God's saying, hey, I've got it under control. I've got it under control. My grace is sufficient. Amen? We need to know that God's faithfulness is bigger than our failures. Psalms 37, 23, and 24 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. It kind of blows my mind that God chose Saul, <clears throat> even knowing his imperfections, knowing he was going to fail, knowing he was going to make, make mistakes. But at the same time, I think Saul gets a bad rap because David made some mistakes, right, as well? David, David blew it as well. And so I don't know about you, but that encourages me because sometimes if I look at myself and the mistakes that I've made or the times that I've failed, I would definitely disqualify myself from being used by God. But it's a good thing that we're not qualified because of what we can do. Amen. We're not quali qualified because of our failures or our successes. We're qualified because of God's faithfulness and what he can do. Amen. God is so good and so faithful. I'll share with you a story, and I got my husband's permission. I'm not just sharing it because he's not here. <laughs> um, my husband got fired from his job years ago, 
And if you know my husband, he's like on the verge of sprouting angel wings. <laughs> he's like so uh, gracious, always has the right response. Like the worst thing he ever did in his life was he changed the, the R to an F on the word truck when he was younger, you know, like with a Sharpie. And then he had to go out and scrub it, aw- scrub it off, you know. He, he's amazing. So he gets fired from his job, and it's his fault. It's his mistake I want to say it's our mistake because we're one and I don't like to like point the finger at him. So we can, we can say that if you want, but it was his mistake. And if you've ever seen anyone um, ashamed, embarrassed, condemning, I mean, he came home and I could see it all over his face. He was devastated. He was ashamed. He was embarrassed. And I'm going to close here if you want to come up. And he... He was very, uh, you know, um, self-condemning. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that, but you're just beating yourself up. How many of you are good at beating yourself up? You're like doing the devil's job for him. <laughs> so he's beating himself up, and he's, he's so embarrassed, and they didn't give him a warning. They just fired him. And, uh, and he came home, and I don't have a job, so he's the only provider. He, he's the only, you know, source of income. Obviously, God is our provider. But at this, at this time, this is our only source of income, and it's gone. And it was so difficult, and we kind of came to prayer to God with our heads hung low and, you know, wondering how we were going to make this work and wondering, you know, gosh, we blew it. You know, we disqualified ourselves from being used, you know, and we're thinking that this is, this is, you know, this is bad. And we pray. And how many of you have ever experienced when you feel like the Holy Spirit just kind of took over your prayer time? It was like, that wasn't even me praying. That was awesome. Like, that was just God through me. And we started praying, and we felt like the Holy Spirit was challenging us. Don't just pray for a job. Pray for the job that you want. And in the midst of my husband feeling unqualified and feeling like a failure, God's grace would be so good to say, I don't just want to set you up with a job. I want to set you up with the job that you want. Could this setback actually be a setup? And so we started praying for that. We don't just pray for a job. We pray for the best job. We pray for a great job. We pray for the job that he wants. And so it caused us to have, you know, these dialogues. What do you want? What do you want to do? And he was like, well, there's this guy and then we met him in church and the way he described his job and his company, it just seemed amazing. It seemed like something I'd be so passionate about and so interested in. I don't even know if they're hiring. This is such a long shot, but he, but he applied anyway. And uh, three weeks later, he got hired at the job that he wanted and the position that he wanted. And to this day, like when the lottery was really big a few months ago, and I was like, what would you do, babe, if you could, you know, just whatever, you could do anything. He was like, I don't know. I love my job so much. It'd be so hard to quit. I mean, I was blown away. But still to this day, he's in a job that is not just a job, but it's a dream job for him that he loves and he's passionate about. And all we did was hand God some rotten bananas. Really. That wasn't a formula that I did something right. It wasn't something he did right. We just handed God our rotten bananas and said, God, make something wonderful. (laughs) Make something great. 
because it's not about our goodness and how much we measure up and how much we've earned and how much we deserve it. It's about his faithfulness, not ours. And he's the hero of the story. He's the one who took the rotten bananas and made something amazing. Not because we deserved it, but that's how good God is, that God can set you up in spite of your failures. And some of you have disqualified yourself because you're like, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the mistakes I've made. You don't know how I've messed up this week and last week. And every year I try this and I try that. And I'm telling you, God is not intimidated by that. He's not intimidated by your failures. So stop discounting yourself that you're not perfect enough and you're not good enough and you're not qualified enough because it's maybe it's just not about you and it's not about the donkeys and it's not about your failures. Maybe it's about God and his glory and his purpose. Amen? Would you stand to your feet with me? Hallelujah. God, we just thank you so much for your faithfulness and your love and your grace and your mercy. And God, we thank you that you work all things together for good. God, we thank you that even in the midst of an imperfect nation with imperfect leaders and an imperfect plan, God, that you can still be glorified, that you can still make your plan prevail. God, I thank you, Lord, for even the the moments and the failures and the things that we're offering to you today that don't look like much. God, they look unusable. Lord, our sin, our failures, the things that we think, Lord, could never be used. God, we thank you that you're a God who can use those things and work it all together for good. God, we thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love. God, we thank you, Jesus. You're so good. And I thank you, Lord, for the setbacks in this room, that they're not really setbacks at all. Lord, that you're setting your people up that you are setting them up for blessing, that you're setting them up for purpose. You're setting them up to pour out your love on them. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we would be able to go to that higher perspective, to see that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways. And I pray, Lord, for those who are experiencing shame and condemnation, God, we pray that you just wash that away this morning. And God, that you would be glorified and your goodness would be glorified. And God, that you would show them that it's not about, it's not about those things. God, but I thank you. If you're in this place and you feel like you've disqualified yourself in some areas and you want to just receive that goodness, that setup, would you raise your hand? All the heads are bowed and all the eyes are closed. Would you just raise your hand if you feel like, hey, you know what? I'm I'm experiencing a setback and I want to be able to have faith that this is a setup. I want to be able to have faith that God can still use me. There's hands all over. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let me just pray for you. God, I thank you for every hand that was raised. I thank you that you see those hands and you respond, Lord, that you are there with them and you see everything that they've discounted themselves for. God, I thank you that you can turn it around and use it for good. And I pray that your presence would meet them where they're at. God, I pray that you'd be so glorified in their story and in their lives that you would be the hero that you would make all things and turn them around for good.